Well, can I, can I add to the welcome that uh, Colin gave to you? Especially good to see so many visitors here this morning. I give you a warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Delighted to see you. It'll be just interesting to see, if you're not too embarrassed, if you are a visitor, just raise your hand so we can see who you are. Now, you are the people who are regulars. You see those people after the service, make sure you greet them personally or someone sitting next to you and give them uh, a personal greeting. And uh, it's great to see visitors here at this particular time. And do take the bulletin and use the prayer information on the back there. We also rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, delighted uh, you'll see this coming weekend that Bruce and Morag getting married here in the chapel and there have been one or two logistical problems but praise God they've all been sorted out uh, their wedding takes place on Friday and then Ricky and uh, Chun Shao are getting married on Saturday so a very happy weekend for them let's commit them to the Lord and pray for them as well at this time well let's just pray first of all and ask God to speak to us through his word the Bible shall we pray Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're not a God who is remote and far off. We thank you that you're a God who has spoken through your Son, the living Word, and that that Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that the Lord Jesus Christ, now risen from the grave, having died for our sins, is seated at your right hand where he intercedes for us, and he has sent the Holy Spirit here on earth to make him known as his word and the good news of the gospel is proclaimed and explained. So help me to explain your word clearly and powerfully and may we respond immediately and gladly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was one of those wish the ground would swallow you up moments. You ever had one? And it's even worse when you can see it coming and you can't escape. Even though it happened 30 years ago, I still feel embarrassed. But I'm going to tell you about it because it's a good sermon illustration. <laughs> My wife and I had been in Pakistan for a short time. We were serving with the national church there. And one day I received a letter among the many bits of mail appealing for funds for the completion of a new church building on the edge of the desert in Sindh province where we worked. I didn't give it a great deal of thought. I put some money in the envelope, sent it back, and I thought nothing more of it until much later at the opening ceremony for the new building. Imagine the scene. Hundreds of people in the open air. Huge big platform. There's the bishop in his robes about to commend the new building to God. But before that, he begins to read a list. And even with my poor knowledge of Urdu, with growing horror, I realize what is about to happen. It went something like this. Mr. and Mrs. Shah, Exa Rupie, 100 rupees. Polite applause. Mr. Shah was a school teacher. Mr. and Mrs. Prasad, Pachas Rupee, 50 rupees. More applause because Mr. Prasad was a very poor sweeper, quite a sacrifice. Mr. and Mrs. Thomas, Ekazar Rupee, 1,000 rupees. Big applause. Yeah, you know what's coming. <laughs> so did I. 
Mr. and Mrs. Granger, das Rupee, 10 rupees. Mr. and Mrs. Granger were rich foreign missionaries. Now, there are some church practices which do not translate cross-culturally. <laughs> and you may believe and hope this is not one of them. We might be embarrassed if what we put in the offering bag this morning or what we give regularly each week and month was read out from the pulpit. But of course, God knows what we give and also what we claim to give. And today as we continue this series, Take My Life, based on the hymn we've just sung, we come to the, the subject... The vexed subject, for some people the embarrassing subject, of giving. With the words, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Now, what exactly, you ask, does that mean? What have you just promised when you sang it? How does it translate into reality? Into pounds and pence? Or possessions? Well, the fullest treatment of Christian giving... In the, in the New Testament, is found in two chapters of the second letter to the church in Corinth, chapters 8 and 9. And today I just want to focus, I will refer to chapter 9, I want to focus on chapter 8. So the first thing is to open your Bibles. If you haven't got one, don't feel embarrassed by that. There are Bibles in the pews, just reach over and get one. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15. And this is all about giving. It's also about an appeal that was made. Financial appeal. 2 Corinthians 8, page 1162, it's on the screen. Verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy... And their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do this as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. 
Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is God's word. Now, before we begin, first of all, a little bit of background to these verses. Paul, the man who wrote this letter, is a special messenger, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. They are members of one of the many churches which had come into being through his missionary tours and preaching throughout the Mediterranean world. And the specific subject of these chapters is an appeal he has made to these new churches to help the Christians in the home church, the mother church, in Jerusalem, back in Jerusalem, and the surrounding province of Judea, who are in great need and poverty. We don't know exactly why that was so. There had been a severe famine in the region, in Judea and that whole area, sometimes previously. The effects were probably still felt. It may also have been the case, if you know the Bible, that the church in Jerusalem, if you read the book of Acts, had been planted on the basis of communal sharing, where everyone pooled their resources. And that had attracted many needy people, people on the margins of society, poor people, widows, and that had maybe drained the funds that had originally been given. And back in Jerusalem and Judea, there was growing hostility and discrimination against Christians. And this could have had a detrimental effect on their income because they would not, may have been excluded from the normal social care provided by the Jewish synagogues and community. And so Paul here, founder of these more prosperous churches in the Mediterranean region... He launches an appeal for funds from the, for these poor Christians. He says he and his fellow workers are ready and willing to complete the collection. They're going around the churches, collecting the money from each church. And so he hopes and believes, he's writing now from Macedonia, he hopes and believes that when they get to Corinth, the Corinthians will come up with what they already promised, first of all. So... He's not embarrassed when he gets there and they have nothing to give. His plan is for a party of three people, specially chosen for their honesty and integrity and reputation, to go ahead of him to collect the money and he's going to meet up with them in Corinth and he's writing to the Corinthians, unlike me in my story, he's warning them, he's saying, when I get there, let's not be embarrassed, Corinthians. When I get there, let's make sure you're ready to give. And so he writes to the Christians in Corinth, but he's writing from Macedonia and he cites the example of the Macedonian churches as a great example, an outstanding example of Christian giving. That's where he begins in verse 1. He says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, that's the brief background to Paul's appeal. 
what is important to us as individuals and as a church is what we can learn also from the example of these Christians in Macedonia. Simply want to say three things. Very simple. What they gave, how they gave, and why they gave. And if you're following this, I have two points under each of those, all right? Two things about what they gave, two things about how they gave, two things about why they gave. Okay, let's start first of all, very simply. What they gave. What did the Christians in Macedonia give? Well, you say it's obvious. They gave their money for the relief of impoverished fellow Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. But to start with money is always to start in the wrong place for Christians and churches. For it places our giving on a par with any other kind of giving or any other kind of appeal that we so often see in the media. No, the giving with which Christians start is far more radical and far more costly. Paul says of the Christians in Macedonia, look at verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord. First of all, they gave themselves. Uh, In his book on 2 Corinthians, it's called Joy in Ministry, the American uh, Michael Didowit has been in the chapel in the past. He, He comments as follows, In the Christian walk, the starting point is commitment to Christ. Yielding your heart and life to God in submission and obedience until you give your life to God, any other gift is a mere token, a handout, a tip. God wants you, not a weekly check from you. That's why our series is called Take My Life. That's why the hymn begins, Take My Life. And then everything else flows from it. Take my moments of my days, take my hands and my feet, take my voice, take my lips, and now take my silver and my gold. It could not and would not begin, verse 1, with take my silver and my gold. And that's where the Macedonian Christians began. They began by giving themselves to the Lord. It's where every Christian must begin. If you are not a Christian today, the last thing I want to do is appeal to you to give your money. Rather, the first thing I want to appeal to you to do is to give yourself to the Lord. That is what the Macedonian Christians did. And then and only then, secondly, they gave their money to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves to Paul and his fellow workers by giving money for the relief fund which they believe was part of God's will for them. If giving money to the Lord must always be preceded by giving yourself to the Lord, then giving your money to the Lord must always follow giving yourself to the Lord. It flows out of it. Uh, One of our former pastors, Alan Redpath, who served in the 60s here in Charlotte Chapel, he preached a series of sermons on 2 Corinthians in his previous church in Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. Uh, Then he came to a the chapel here, and he preached through the same series. Partway through the series, some of you are here at the time will know, he was taken very seriously ill, took a stroke. And out of that experience, he wrote a book based on those sermons. It's called Blessings Out of Buffetings. Uh, I noticed looking on the internet, it's not available at the moment, except in India. For 48 rupees, it's been reprinted. (laughs) Which is great. You can get it on Amazon, all right? It's a great book. Uh, this is what Alan writes, and those of you who knew Alan would recognize, our brother Alec and others will recognize, this is Alan, uh, this is Alan speaking. 
of the Corinthians. He writes, they had given themselves up to him entirely. And when a man comes to a place where he does not own himself, he will never again say that he owns his money. He will never again say that material things belong to him. He belongs to the Lord Jesus himself, and therefore everything else he has is Christ also. Sense, isn't it? Absolute radical truth. Now, as we pause at the end of this first point, is that how you and I regard our money and material goods? Do we see ourselves, do you see yourself as an owner or a steward entrusted with God, some of us with more than others, your gifts and possessions, you're a steward of what God has given you, you're accountable to him for how you use it. So, what do the Macedonian Christians give? What should we give? First yourself, then your money. Remarkable though that was, and Paul says, they did not do as we expected. What was even more remarkable, secondly, was how they gave. Why did Paul say of the Macedonians, they did not do as we expected? For one very good reason. The Macedonians in question were the very poorest relations of the region. They lived, verse 2, in extreme poverty. Yet we discover they responded to this relief appeal in two surprising ways. One, by giving generously, even extravagantly. And secondly, they gave willingly, even to the point of pleading to be allowed to give. Every church treasurer's dream. Someone comes to you and says, please, please let me give. It's usually the other way around, isn't it? We plead for you to give. Now, look more closely at these two features of their giving. First of all, they gave generously, not sparingly. Look at verses 2 and 3, remarkable verses. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Michael Diderit explains, Macedonia was one of the most heavily taxed regions of the Roman Empire. In addition, the economy suffered the effects of a series of civil wars. In our era, we might compare it to a third world country beset with economic difficulties. And he continues, on top of this, the Macedonian churches had experienced persecution almost from their birth. And persecution usually includes destruction of property and plundering of goods. So these Christians were among the most financially limited of a poor region. You would expect such people in such straitened circumstances to tighten their belts and expect to be on the receiving end. To look to others to give to them. Yet it was out of, Paul says, out of this severe trial, in this extreme poverty, that their giving overflowed. He said it just flowed out of their lives. Overflowed, welled up in rich generosity. Now, those of us who've had the privilege of working in what, I don't like the term, but you'll know what I mean by it, uh, of working in what is called the third world have often been moved and indeed shamed by the generosity of poor Christians towards us rich foreigners. I have visited many a poor tribal village in India and Pakistan at the back of nowhere. Probably I was wearing and carrying in my bag more than they owned. And what do they do? Take one of their chickens and kill it and make a special meal to celebrate our visit. You were almost overcome with embarrassment knowing that they very rarely eat meat because they can't afford to. 
And, and surely, I just simply want to say, I recognize we all face this in different ways. In this day of credit crunch, surely it's a challenge to us. It's one thing to give when you've got enough to give. It's surely much more of a challenge to faith and commitment to give out of poverty in difficulty. Most missions and churches are looking at the moment anxiously, carefully at their income to see if they will need to cut back in these days. Thankfully, in some, though not all cases, Christians have responded by maintaining what they're given. Some have even chosen to give more. You see, the challenge of putting into practice what we sang, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold, is that the mite in question was the smallest possible coin. You remember that story in the Gospels where that widow woman only had one mite and she put it in the offering and all these rich people were throwing in silver shekels. And Jesus said about the widow's mite, Mark 12, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. She only put a tiny coin. They put, you know, Huge amount of silver and gold. Yes, says Jesus. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The example of the widow, these Macedonian Christians, is a challenge to me. I'm sure it's a challenge to you. Of extravagant sacrificial giving, despite difficult circumstances. One wit once commented, some Christians give beyond their means, some Christians give according to their means, but some Christians give according to their meanness. Well, I I hope we're not in that category. Why? Because little giving produces little results. In the next chapter, Paul points out this principle drawing from the illustration of farming in chapter 9. Sowing and reaping, he says, remember this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, this is not some kind of prosperity gospel that you sometimes hear on the God channel. You know, if you put five pounds into the offering, then God will give you 50 pounds back. People people say that. There's a case in America of an American Christian who sued his pastor for saying it from the pulpit because he put all his money in and didn't get anything back does not mean that it's not a kind of divine investment plan where you reap personal profits no go back it is about investing God's money in God's kingdom to reap God's harvest of people coming to faith in him that's where we put the money in that's why we give how much the work of the gospel in churches and missions is limited by limited giving if we are not reaping generously we must ask is it because we are not sowing generously of course there is a personal promise when we sow generously we we discover that God does meet our needs not our wants our needs look at God's promise in the second chapter again in chapter 9 rather in verse 8 it says and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times having note the words all that you need you will abound in every good work God is no man's debtor As we give, he meets our needs. So the Macedonians gave generously in spite of severe trial and extreme poverty. We also discover, secondly, they gave gladly, not grudgingly. Paul writes, verse 3, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. 
Paul didn't have to rattle a collecting tin under their noses or twist their arms. In fact, as we've seen, he didn't ex even expect them to, to contribute because he thought to himself, well, these are very poor Christians. I'm writing to the rich ones in places like Corinth. But to his amazement, they said, no, no, we'd like to... We, they pleaded to be allowed to participate. They saw it a great privilege to share with their fellow Christians back in Jerusalem and Judea. Maybe they recognized that they owed so much to this church which had launched the mission to the Roman world. Whatever... The, the case, they didn't see their giving as an obligation or even a duty, though it was, but as a privilege. So their generous giving was entirely voluntary. Now, in the next chapter, again, in chapter 9, verse 7, Paul draws a general principle about voluntary giving. Look what he says, very important. Each man should give what is decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Many people have pointed out that there is no mention in these two chapters, the most extended discussion of the subject, there is no mention of the Jewish practice of tithing. Under the old covenant, you tithed everything. You gave a tenth back to God. One reason for this may be that this is not about tithes. It's about offerings. People gave a tenth. They gave tithes and offerings. This is an offering. While tithing may be a good rule of thumb, especially under the new covenant as a minimum, I don't think you can apply it legalistically as the best way to decide what you're going to give. For one good reason. A tithe is a lot less costly for a millionaire than it is for a person on a mini minimum income or less. Many years ago, I recall, uh, way, way down in London, I preached at a brethren assembly there. And in the congregation was Sir John Lang, the founder of Lang Constriction. He was a very elderly man in those days, in his 90s. Uh, you know who he was. You'll see his name, still the family name on many construction projects. He was a British entrepreneur. And, and I went out to lunch with one of the men who had worked very closely with him, one, one of his executives. And he told me the story of Sir John Lang's business. You may, have no, you may know the story, some of you. But uh, when the company was on the verge of bankruptcy in 1909, Sir John Langer was a committed Christian. He made a pledge with God. He, this guy drew it out for me. He said, this is what he did. And he showed me this sort of financial chart. He said, Sir John Lang said, Lord, if I earn this much this year, I will give a tenth back to you. If I earn more next year, I'll give more, two tenths to you. And he drew this actual graph of the more he earned, the more he would give. By the end of his life... He was living on a tithe, on, t on a tenth, and giving away nine-tenths. The most remarkable thing of all, one of the richest men in Britain, well, one the, seemingly one of the wealthiest men in Britain, and he didn't live an ostentatious lifestyle by any means. When he died, his estate, to everyone's astonishment, his estate was valued at 371 pounds. And people said, wow, where did all this wealth go? He gave it away. This is not a blueprint necessarily for anyone else. It's a personal choice, as Paul says, each man should decide. But we have to make a personal choice about our giving. Not grudgingly, but gladly. For Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word translated cheerful there is, is a Greek word, hilaros, from which we derive our English word, hilarious. Uh, the English word means something slightly different, of course. But the emotion behind it is not. Giving should be joyful. Part of our worship when we meet on the Lord's Day, as we bring our offerings, which is surely a better word than collection, 
when we lived in Nigeria, another part of our long career, uh, we, lived, we lived in Nigeria, and uh, when they take up the offering in Nigeria, it is a different experience to Charlotte Chapel, believe me. The uh, first time it catches you really off guard, because they say, now we're going to take up the offering, and the music strikes up, and instead of people coming around with bags in front of your noses, everybody gets out their seats, and then they dance down to the front of the aisle, waving their money, and as they get to the front, they sort of throw it in and dance back to their seats again. And they enjoy it so much that often they'll say, let's do it again, we need more money, let's get a second offering. (laughs) I I exaggerate not, I I have been in a third offering church on one occasion. Now again, this may not translate cross-culturally, though it's worth a try. (laughs) Uh, There's such an attitude to transcend all cultures. Glad, cheerful, hilarious giving. So that's how they gave. Thirdly and finally, why they gave. There are two reasons why they gave. You may may say if you're not a Christian, I just don't get this at all. I mean, you give away money hilariously. I mean, what's that about? You give yourself. What's that about? Well, you need to look at why they gave. Why we give if we are Christians. There are two reasons. The first reason they gave, generously and gladly, their money and themselves, they gave because of Christmas. Christmas is all about giving. In one of the most beautiful statements in the New Testament, Paul switches the focus from giving to receiving. And he says, For you know, you Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's an amazing verse. I could probably spend at least another hour just starting to talk about it. But, but notice two really important things in this verse. This verse tells you about the pre-existence of Christ. He was rich. And it tells you about the incarnation of Christ. He became poor. Christ existed before he came to earth. In his own words to the critics who questioned his authority, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. They knew exactly what he was talking about using the words, I am, of the Lord himself. He was rich. He experienced the glories of heaven, the worship of myriad of angels, and all that the God had involved. Yet he became poor. He voluntarily, gladly laid it aside, born as a tiny baby in humble circumstances, living in obscurity, dying in great indignity. On a cross, he became poor so that we, in our poverty, enslaved in sin, rebels against God, heading for death and hell, might become rich. That's grace. It's not what you earn. If you got what you earn, you'd get nothing except hell. Grace is God's unmerited love and favor, which says Paul, he says to the Corinthians, now, we're talking about giving here. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven, reconciled to God. You've received his spirit in full measure, overflowing within you. You've been promised an eternal inheritance. You were heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. You've become rich, you're spiritual millionaires. And so have we if we become Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian, you won't understand this at all. Sadly, I just hope today, maybe for the first time, you'll understand what it means to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that God loves you, 
not because of what you put in the offering or what you can do or give. He just loves you because he's a God of love and grace. And he sent his son to show you his greatness of his love for you. See, if you receive such grace, then you will share such grace. Indeed, the word grace, the Greek word grace is charis, from which we get the word charity, which means something different today. But charity is about grace. So the passage begins with this focus. Notice where we started, sharing God's grace. He says, now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God has given to the Macedonians. He didn't say, we want you to know about the money that the Macedonians gave. We want you to know about the grace that God gave to the Macedonians and how was it seen out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welling up in rich generosity. They were filled with God's grace and it just overflowed from their lives and they said, how can we share it with other people? Oh, there's some needy people. Let us give some money to them. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. That's grace at work. It's grace in giving, seen in the Macedonian churches. And so, he says to the Corinthian church, exhibit this same grace as well. So we urged Titus, one of the leaders who was collecting the money, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. So he continues, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in what? In this grace of giving. And then he concludes by reminding him of our wonderful verse 4. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, again, I pause to ask, do we know anything of that grace of God in our lives? You see, you receive, you come to faith in Christ, you receive grace, but you go on receiving grace. If you start getting in this thing where you owe God something and he owes you something and you've put money in the offering, you expect something back, you just end up in a legalistic situation. But when you recognize everything you have is received by grace, it just overflows from you. Maybe this morning at the Lord's table, you need a fresh experience of God's grace in your need. Maybe even in your pride. I'm a Charlotte Chapel member. I, who knows how much money I've given to God? doesn't matter it's all grace come to the Lord's table experience his grace afresh so they gave because of Christmas and secondly they gave because of Christians you see they have a particular responsibility to family members who have received the same grace and yet are in great need so Paul goes on to talk about supplying the needs of family members look at verses 13 to 15 our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty, Corinthians, will supply what they need, folks in Jerusalem and Judea, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. The reference there is a reference to Exodus 16, verse 8. You'll see the footnote at the bottom. It's about when God gave the manna in the wilderness. What was the manna for? It was because they needed food to eat. So God sent this miraculous food called manna during their desert wanderings. And there's something very remarkable about it. You couldn't become a manna stockist. You couldn't say, I'm going to start a manna shop. 
this wonderful food. I'm going to gather loads of it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get into the manna market, you know, and I'll, I'll make a big business out of this. No, you could only gather enough each day for what you needed to eat. If you tried to store it, it stank and went off. So there was equality. Now, when he says equality, it doesn't mean equality that they all had exactly the same standard of living. It means there was equality as far as need was concerned. That equally, they all had enough. Now, the same principle applies today in our churches. We have different standards of living within Charlotte Chapel. But we should be equal on this ground. There should not be poverty among us where people are in extreme poverty. And that's why one of the things we do, we do lots of things, but one of the things as you leave this morning, there's a box called for our fellowship fund. And, and every time we meet around the Lord's table, people, it's an extra offering, it's number two, you, you can put money into it. And the elders and uh, pastoral team dis- distribute it among people who are in need within the congregation, uh, discreetly and confidentially. If you're in need, you can come to us and say, look, I've got a particular need, can you help me with can't promise to meet every need, but we try and make sure that there are people with it, there aren't people in our fellowship who are living in poverty. Now, what applies within a church should apply across churches. We give a lot of money to the Barnabas Fund, uh, which tries to give practical help to Christians in parts of the world where there is suffering, particularly those facing persecution and discrimination because of their faith in Christ. And behind their giving is a key principle in giving, taken from Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. We should give to all people and without discrimination, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So when you hear there are Christians who are literally starving, and we have relative prosperity, we give towards that, and we've given generously to it, and we'll continue to do, I believe. Because we have an obligation, but we have a privilege to give to fellow Christians in need. We give because of Christmas. We give because of Christians. Okay, finally, almost at the end. I began with that story about, personal story about embarrassment, about giving. But there is the same element here in what Paul writes. That's the context. You see, in contrast with the poverty of the Macedonian churches in places like Philippi and Thessalonica, the Christian church in Corinth was extremely rich. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a busy, prosperous commercial center. And when Paul had first mooted this idea of a relief fund and said, we should raise some money to give to the poor Christians in Judea and Jerusalem, the Corinthians were the very first to put their hands up. Yes, great idea. Put us down for it. We'll do it. And Paul reminds them of this. The church in Corinth, the promise that had been made, he says, here's my advice, what is best for you in this matter. Last year, a year ago, you were the first not only to give, but to have the desire to do so. But now a year has passed, and he's worried that they're not going to come up with their promises. So he gently reminds them, here is a promise that should be fulfilled. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Otherwise, he said, can you imagine the embarrassment? I turn up in Corinth with some members of that poor Macedonian churches who were all given sacrificially. And you were the first guys, you rich guys, and promised to give. And we arrived there, and you've got nothing to give. So he says, don't be ashamed. Verse 4, for if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. 
Now, embarrassment is not a nice emotion, is it? Being ashamed. But there's a greater shame and embarrassment when we're ashamed before God. God alone knows what I have promised, what you have promised, giving yourself and your money. He knows what we actually have given or are giving. Let's keep our commitments. And let's be those whom God loves, cheerful givers. May our words and songs match reality as we sing and put into practice, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Let's pray together and ask God to help us. Gracious God, you are a generous God. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich became poor so that we might become rich. Lord, if any of us here don't know what it is to receive that grace, help us to know and recognize and receive your grace afresh today for the first time. And some of us need that grace once more to overflow into our lives for so easily we dry up and wither by our own efforts. So again, at the Lord's table, may we know what it is to receive your grace and may it overflow in rich generosity and kindness and love towards fellow believers and to all people. Lord, help us to put into practice and to be what you've said to us this morning and indeed to be cheerful givers. We ask it in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.